was covered with a crimson cloth. The walls were a soft fawn colour with a blush of pink in it. The wardrobe, the toilet table, the chairs were of darkly polished old mahogany. Out of these deep surrounding shades rose high and glared white the piled-up mattresses and pillows of the bed, spread with a snowy Marseille counterpane. Scarcely less prominent was an ample cushioned easy chair near the head of the bed, also white with a footstool before it, and looking, as I thought, like a pale throne. This room was chill, because it seldom had a fire. It was silent, because remote from the nursery and kitchen. Solemn, because it was known to be seldom entered. The housemaid alone came here on Saturdays, to wipe from the mirrors and the furniture a week's quiet dust, and Mrs. Reed herself, at far intervals, visited it to review the contents of a certain secret drawer in the wardrobe where were stored divers' parchments, her jewel casket, and a miniature of her deceased husband. And in those last words lies the secret of the Red Room, the spell which kept it so lonely in spite of its grandeur. Mr. Reed had been dead nine years. It was in this chamber he breathed his last. Here he lay in state, hence his coffin was borne by the undertaker's men, and since that day a sense of dreary consecration had guarded it from frequent intrusion. My seat, to which Bessie and the bitter Miss Abbott had left me riveted, was a low ottoman near the marble chimney-piece. The bed rose before me. To my right hand there was the high dark wardrobe with subdued broken reflections varying the gloss of its panels. To my left were the muffled windows. A great looking glass between them repeated the vacant majesty of the bed and the room. I was not quite sure whether they had locked the door, and when I dared move, I got up and went to see. Alas! Yes, no jail was ever more secure. Returning, I had to cross before the looking-glass. My fascinated glance involuntarily explored the depth it revealed. All looked colder and darker in that visionary hollow than in reality, and the strange little figure there gazing at me, with a white face and arms specking the gloom, and glittering eyes of fear moving where all else was still, had the effect of a real spirit. I thought it like one of the tiny phantoms, half fairy, half imp, Bessie's evening stories represented as coming out of lone, ferny dells in moors and appearing before the eyes of belated travellers. I returned to my stool. Superstition was with me at that moment, but it was not yet her hour for complete victory. My blood was still warm. The mood of the revolted slave was still bracing me with its bitter vigour. I had to stem a rapid rush of retrospective thought before I quailed to the dismal present. All John Reed's violent tyrannies, all his sister's proud indifference, all his mother's aversion, all the servant's partiality turned up in my disturbed mind like a dark deposit in a turbid well. Why was I always suffering, always browbeaten, always accused, forever condemned? Why could I never please? Why was it useless to try to win anyone's favour? Eliza, who was headstrong and selfish, was respected. Georgiana, who had a spoiled temper, a very acrid spite, a captious and insolent carriage, was universally indulged. Her beauty, her pink cheeks and golden curls, seemed to give delight to all who looked at her and to purchase indemnity for every fault. John no one thwarted, much less punished, though he twisted the necks of the pigeons, killed the little pea-chicks, set the dogs at the sheep, stripped the hothouse vines of their fruit, and broke the buds off the choicest plants in the conservatory. He called his mother old girl, too, 
sometimes reviled her for her dark skin similar to his own, bluntly disregarded her wishes, not unfrequently tore and spoiled her silk attire, and he was still her own darling. I dared commit no fault. I strove to fulfill every duty, and I was termed naughty and tiresome, sullen and sneaking, from morning to noon, from noon to night. My head still ached and bled with the blow and fall I had received. No one had reproved John for wantonly striking me, and because I had turned against him to avert farther irrational violence, I was loaded with general opprobrium. Unjust! Unjust! said my reason, forced by the agonizing stimulus into precocious though transitory power, and resolve, equally wrought up, instigated some strange expedient to achieve escape from insupportable oppression, as running away or, if that could not be effected, never eating or drinking more and letting myself die. What a consternation of soul was mine that dreary...